Good morning, Grace Road. Mark chapter 9, if you have a Bible this morning. Uh, We've been studying through the book of Mark, and if you have noticed in the last couple of weeks, we've kind of hit a turning point in the book of Mark where things uh, start to get a little bit more serious. Christ has established who he is. He has uh, made known Uh, that he is all-powerful, that he is capable of miracles. He's done the healing ministry. He's done things that have caught uh, the attention of many. And we're at the point of the book now where Christ is starting to call for commitments. And repeatedly, over and over again, he is starting to make known his plans to willingly suffer and die on our behalf. And he's starting to say that more, and he's calling for commitments more. And it's really that tough part of the book now where uh, some people stop following Jesus because the call and the commitment get a little bit more than what they can handle. So in Mark chapter 9, he's going to call us to some additional things. And every time I, I preach in, in place of Kevin, I, I get a little worried because um, I'm certainly not as smart as he is. I'm certainly not as sharp as he is. And, and, and legitimately so, like every time that I preach, it seems like he'll listen to the podcast and then he'll say, hey, I just want to connect with you some things about your sermon. And I get excited thinking he's going to like say something positive. And uh, He'll go, uh, hey, remember when you said that word? Uh, and he'll quote a word, and I'll say, yeah. And he'll say, yeah, that's not a word. Or, hey, you remember when you said this thing? Yeah, that's not true. Uh, so I get real worried because, I, like I said, I'm, I'm certainly not as sharp and intelligent, and I say dumb things. I am liberated by the truth this morning that no matter what I say this morning, it will not be as ignorant and crazy as the conversation that we are going to read about in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're going to start in verse number 30. That may seem like an exaggeration because we've all had and heard crazy conversations. YouTube is loaded with them. We all have friends that have said said crazy things, but uh, I promise you they will not surpass what we look at this morning. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30, Jesus for the second time is going to lay it out very clear that he plans to die. And it's contrary to what the disciples were expecting, so it goes in one ear and out the other. But verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Very clear. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Verse number 33. And, he came, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you discussing on the way? Verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, I want you to picture this here, okay? Christ says, hey, I'm going to lay down my life. I am going to die for the sins of the world. The Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to lay down his life and die. And as they're traveling on the path, uh, we're, we're 10 minutes removed from Christ saying, hey, uh, the least is going to be the greatest and that you need to take up your cross and follow me. And, and, and we... Uh, was it last week that we, we, we learned that Christ was transfigured on the Mount of the Mount of Transfiguration and opened himself up 
and was glowing. And the disciples have seen all this. We're not too far removed from all this. And as they're traveling on the way, they start discussing with one another, hey, you remember when Christ said, hey, the least is, is the greatest? You know, I've been giving it some thought, and I'm pretty humble. I mean, I, I might be the most humble person I know. And if the least is the greatest, and I certainly am the least, I guess I'm the greatest. And another one of the disciples says, you know, I don't know. Because Christ has been really working humility in me, and I mean meekness and lowliness. And come to think of it, I'm probably the most humble person I know. So I don't think you're the greatest. I think I'm the greatest. I'm the most humble. And then the gloves come off and they start arguing about this. They start arguing about who is the greatest on the way to their next location. Now here's why this is crazy. Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, has stepped into human history and has been spending time with them. And they've acknowledged that he's the Messiah. He went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, opened himself up. He's glowing. He's shining bright. He's the express image of God. I mean, that's a big deal. That's kind of great. And then not only that, Moses and Elijah, they came back from the dead to hang out with Jesus. And that's probably not how you spent your weekend. Uh, Again, showing that he's pretty great. Then after the hangout time with Moses and Elijah, he comes down from the mountain, and the very disciples who are arguing about being the greatest, they're trying to cast out a demon and can't. So Jesus casts it out for them. And after all this happens, they're arguing about, hey, which one of us is the greatest? You have to imagine if you're there, you would be the voice of reason to go, hey, my vote's on the glowing guy. Like, I, I, I vote for him. You know the guy that's casting out demons and feeding 5,000 and doing all that? Like, I vote for the glowing guy. That's, that, that who, that's who gets my vote. But they're arguing about who is the greatest. And Christ calls them on it. So as they're traveling, Christ says, hey, remember back there? It seemed like you guys were kind of arguing about some, some stuff. What were you arguing about? Maybe I can help you with that. And in, immediately they, they, they're embarrassed and they feel the shame because they know. They know that what they were arguing about was like nobody chimed in and said, I am glad you asked. Good. Maybe you can clear this up for us, right? So we're trying to argue. We're we're trying to figure out which one of us is the greatest Jesus. And you can you can be the deciding vote. Which one of uh, like nobody does that. They hang their head in shame. They're embarrassed because they know they know that what they were arguing about was prideful and ridiculous. Now, I love the disciples, especially Peter. Peter's my boy because Peter's like me. He's always going to say something that he wishes he had back shortly after saying it. Uh, I love the disciples because they have these kind of crazy conversations, and you can look at them and get excited and feel better about yourself. Like, man, these guys are crazy and stupid. But the reality is this, that they argued about this, and they had this argument audibly, But if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we have this argument in our hearts and in our minds all the time. It is the bent 
of our sin nature to want to be great and to be great by the world's standards. And we may never argue with one another out loud and say, I'm the greatest, I'm more humble. We laugh at that. But in our minds and in our hearts, we have our own definition of greatness and we're going after it. And usually it's, a, it's the world's standard of greatness. So here's how it looks. I define in my own head what greatness looks like. And for all of us, it could be a different thing. Maybe for one person, it's money. If I, if I just had this amount of money, then, then I would be great. And another person, it's family. If I just had the perfect family with this many kids and a happy man, then I would be great. And, and for another person, this was the position, this position. If I can get this position at work, I'll get the respect and the authority. This is, if I had this, this would make me great. For another person, it could be totally different. It could be beauty and If I just have this uh, type of wardrobe and filled with just these types of brands, because I would never wear these types of clothes, uh, these types of brands will help make me look beautiful, and I have this type of body, and I wear these types of clothes, then I'll be great. And somebody else could have that same ambition and say, I would never wear those types of brands. Those are terrible. Greatness to me is this. And if I had these brands, and I look like this, then I would be great. We all have our own definition of greatness. If I could be this, if I could have this, if I could do this, then I would be great. And that's in our heart. And then what happens is we pursue that. And we pursue it at any cost. We go after it. And if anybody stands in our way, we're not afraid to tear them down and and, and belittle them and talk bad about them so that I can be great and everybody else in some way can be beneath me. And depending on how bad I want that, uh, I'll do more sinful things. And this is what drives sport players to, to take steroids and to cheat because they want something. They want greatness so bad that they'll, do, they'll go after it at any cost. They'll lie, they'll cheat, they'll steal. And because we have this sin nature in our heart, we pursue what we feel is greatness. And oftentimes it's just a worldly standard of greatness. And then we'll go to to Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and advertise our greatness and and, and pursue what we feel we need to pursue so that people will think we're awesome and think that we're great and give us the respect and the adoration that our sinful hearts crave. So we pursue this greatness, and then what ends up happening is that God and people are just a means to our end. God exists really for my glory and to worship me. So I want God to give me what I want, do what I want, and uh, provide the things that I need so that I can be great and I can get glory. And people, people need to contribute. I'll spend my time with people who will help me get to that end of greatness. So if you're going to in some way contribute to my greatness, provide for my greatness, help uh, give me the perception that I'm great, then I'm going to spend time with you. If you're not being a benefit to me, then I really don't have any use for you. Uh, If you're going to benefit me in some way, I'll spend some time with you. So we have this definition of greatness by the world standard, and we pursue it at all costs. And the problem is that, 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 that greatness is devoid of Christ and the gospel. It's finding our identity in something other than Christ. And anytime we do that, we're going to have a miserable existence because it's sin. 
and it's idolatry. Ultimately, I want to be worshipped. I want to be great. So I focus on getting my glory and being great instead of giving glory to the God who deserves it. And because I'm not finding my identity in Christ, I'm going to struggle and I'm going to be miserable. And each of us have this in us. But we need to reject that. We need to reject the desire to be great by the world's standards. Because it only leads to one of two things, either pride or despair. Pride is, if I feel like I am getting to the place of greatness, then I can look down at everybody else and say, I'm better than they are, I have more than they, uh, my, I have this, I have this position, they don't, I'm skinnier, I'm better looking, I have more money, I have the stuff that everybody wants, and I get prideful. I'm a better Christian and I get prideful. If I try to find my identity in something other than Christ, it's going to lead to pride, or it's going to lead to despair. And that is, I'm going to be miserable because I don't think I have those things. I'm not as good-looking as everybody else. I don't have as much as everybody else has. Uh, I'm not the Christian that everybody else is, and I'm going to be miserable. It's either going to be pride or despair when I find my identity in something other than Christ. When I'm obsessed and enamored with myself and my desire to be great like the disciples were, I'm going to be miserable or prideful. So Christ calls them on that. He says, hey, what were you arguing about? Christ doesn't let this conversation go. You have to imagine the disciples had plenty of conversations that Christ never addressed or felt the need, that it was a teachable moment, but Christ calls them out on this one says, hey, what were you talking about? And when they say what they were talking about, Christ doesn't say, you want to be great? Uh, Greatness? Greatness? Don't pursue greatness. He doesn't do that. He doesn't rebuke them for their desire to pursue greatness. But what he's going to do is he's going to radically reshape what greatness looks like. And it's going to turn upside down their belief of what greatness looks like. And honestly, as we look at this passage this morning, it's going to do the same thing for us. Because as Jesus talks about what greatness looks like, they're going to be hard things for us. Because this is not how we view greatness. He doesn't say, hey, greatness is a dumb idea. He says, if you want to be great, let me tell you how. Look with me again in verse number 35. You want to be great? And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus, knowing their hearts, does a really cool thing. He goes and grabs a child, sets the child in the midst of the disciples. He wraps his arms around the child, embraces the child, and says, if you want to be great, minister to this guy. Now, in our culture, we love kids. We all but worship our kids. Uh, So when we look at this passage, we think, wow, that's really cute. That's adorable that Jesus did that. But in their day, for the disciples to see what just happened there was nothing short of shocking. And here's why. Kids in their day were nothing but an inconvenience. 
They were not adorable. They were not cute. They were an inconvenience. They were needy. They were a drain on resources. They didn't provide for the family income. So they would have the women or the servants take care of the kids, certainly not males and certainly not respected rabbis and disciples. You got to remember that the disciples had this view that Christ was coming in to usher in an earthly kingdom. And they had this view of they were going to be by his side wearing crowns. They were going to be a big deal. And Christ says, hey, if you want to be a big deal, I want you to minister to this needy, dependent child. This was shocking to them. It was appalling to them. Modern day, this would be somebody coming to the church and saying, hey, I'm new to your church, but I just want you to know I have an earned doctorate in in theology. I used to be a pastor at this church, and I've been a deacon uh, for as long as I can remember before then, and uh, I have a lot of ministry credentials, and I'm new to your church, wondering if you could plug me in and, and get me started on something. You know, if you need me to teach a class or, you know, you just let me know what you want me to do and and the pastors say hey if, if you want to minister in this church that's great um listen we got this homeless guy and if you could just if you could minister to him and help him and love on him that would be great the disciples thought no no like no i'm 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 above that i i'm a big deal i got big things that we're going to be accomplishing and christ turns that right upside down and says if you want to be a If you want to be great, be a servant of all. Minister to the needy. This is the widows. This is the homeless. This is the orphans. This is the people that are very dependent and needy. And Christ says, hey, you know those people that you tend to avoid and shun and go the opposite direction when you see them coming? Those are the people I want you to minister to. Those are the people that I want you to be a servant to. The disciples thought greatness was being served, being ministered to. And Christ turns that upside down and says, if you want to be great, then minister and serve this lowly, needy child. And like I said, they didn't like this because they're trying, just like you and I, to climb the cultural and social and economic ladder. They're trying to be great, and they think greatness has this path upward. And Christ says, minister to this person who is not going to contribute to your economic wealth, not your social status. Minister to this guy. And he turns it right upside down. And when we When we hear that, if your heart is anything like mine, it's tough because it's not natural for me to want to do that. Uh, We don't naturally want to do that. And the reason is because without realizing it, we tend to spend our time with those that we think will help us in some way. When we determine how we're going to spend our time with people, typically it's, is this person going to be an encouragement to me? Are they going to make me happy? Are they going to make me feel better about myself or contribute to uh, my greatness in some way? And we probably would never articulate it that way. But typically, that's what we think about when we're picking who we're going to spend time with. We don't tend to say, hey, my Saturday just opened up and I'd really like to spend it with somebody very needy and dependent who might be a drain on my resources and a drain on my time. We don't usually do that. We look for people to spend time with that we feel will, will help us in some way. 
And Christ is saying, hey, those people that irritate you, those needy people, spend time with them. That's what greatness looks like, the type of people we run from. So how do we do this? How do we get to the point where uh, our heart wants to help those in need, that we want to help the desperate and the marginalized and the people that don't have much, that bring nothing to the table for us, that aren't going to be able to help us in any way? How do we get to the point where we want to help those people? And the answer is, like it's the answer for everything, it's to look to the gospel. Because in the gospel, I realize that I was needy, that I was desperate, that I brought nothing to the table, that, that, that Christ didn't benefit from his relationship with me. He didn't look at me and he didn't look at you and say, you know, they really have something to offer me. Therefore, I am going to save them and call them my friend and invite them into my family. We are the kid in the story. We are that little boy that Christ said, despite being needy, despite being marginalized, I am going to embrace and wrap my arms around this person. So the only way we get to the place that we want to minister to the needy is when we recognize how needy we were, how desperate we were. And yet Christ, despite the fact that we're a drain on resources, that, that we don't have it all together, that we don't contribute positively to Christ's fame and his power and his greatness, that he was willing to lay down his life for us. And when we embrace that, when we are empowered by that, that fuels us to say, you know what? If, if Christ would do that for me, then I, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can do that for somebody else. Knowing how needy I was, knowing how desperate I was, that Christ loved me enough to lay down his life for me, I can lay down my life for somebody else. So that's what empowers us to live like that. Jesus is proclaiming that your definition, my definition of greatness, has to be turned upside down. That it's not how beautiful we are. It is not what we possess. It is not what uh, we are and what position we hold and how many people respect us and adore us. Christ is saying, greatness is being a servant of all. But only with a gospel motivation will we ever try to live that out. Because if we try to live it out with guilt, uh, okay, this is what he said, so I'll try to do it, or to pay God back or to earn his favor, and we try to white knuckle, I'm going to go ahead and, and try to serve people, that'll fade quickly. But when we're empowered by the gospel and his great love for us, then we can look at people and say, you know what, I'm loved, I've been taken care of, Christ takes good care of me, he loves me, has embraced me, I can embrace this person, uh, I'm taken care of, then I don't feel like I'm losing when I help somebody out. But if everybody's a competition and I'm just trying to climb a ladder, then I can't spend my time with people that are marginalized and needy. So this is uncomfortable, uh, but it's what Christ calls us to. And as the disciples were listening to this, you can rest assured that they were uncomfortable too. So uncomfortable this is why I love the disciples. John tries to change the subject. 
So Christ is talking about what greatness looks like, and he's, and he's turning it upside down on the disciples. And, and, and John tries to change the subject. Verse number 38. John says to him, Oh yeah, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. <laughs> Love this. Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So they come out and they say, Jesus, there's this other guy and he's doing great things and, and he's casting demons out of people and, and we're not getting the credit. So we told him, stop, but he won't stop. So what do you, what do you think we should do about it? Like, should we all go there and kind of lay it down for him and put an end to this thing, or what? And again, Jesus is, is hitting home this point of what greatness looks like. Jesus starts to inquire, I imagine, and says, okay, so does he love me? Well, yeah. Okay, um, are demons bad? Yeah. And this guy is casting the demon out of people? Uh huh. Well, that's a good thing, right? Like that shouldn't get mad at that. But but we're not getting the credit. He doesn't go to our church. He didn't go to our Bible college. He doesn't do it the way that we did it, or didn't do it because they just tried to cast out a demon and it didn't work, and they're probably still bitter about that. But uh, but do you see what happens? When we pursue our own greatness and we're enamored with ourselves, we can't root for other people. Everybody becomes competition. And keep in mind, these are Christians talking about other Christians. Like, this is a Christian conversation here. Hey, we're doing the Lord's work, and so are they, but they're doing it better than us, so we got to put a stop to it. It's ridiculous. But this is what happens when our hearts are enamored with ourselves instead of the kingdom of God. When we're seeking our own glory and our own greatness instead of God's glory and God's greatness, everybody becomes a competition and we want to put an end to it because they're a threat against us. On a church level, this happens all the time where churches get jealous about what other churches are doing because if Grace Road Church's goal is to build a great Grace Road church. If that was our goal, then every other church would be competition. And that's what happens with a lot of churches. If Grace Road Church's goal is to build the kingdom of God and make Christ known in our city and around the world, then every other gospel-preaching church is a a family, they're a friend, they're a help, we're going to cheer with them. They're a teammate. They're on our side. They're doing the Lord's work. So that's where we are as a church. And we're not talking about churches that preach a false gospel. We're just saying when a, when a church loves Jesus, they believe the gospel, they preach the gospel, they're serving people humbly. Christ is being glorified. We're on their team. We're going to root for them. We're going to pray for them. We're about that church as well. And if some of our people go there, we're okay with that. Like, we're not, uh, we're not in competition. So that's how it happens on a church level. But this happens in our hearts with individuals as well. Where if, 
if I'm pursuing greatness and this is what greatness looks like to me and somebody else has those things already, I can't root for them. I can't cheer them on because they're competition. So I find myself talking behind their back, being bitter against them. They got that job that I wanted. They have the thing that I want and I can't root for them. I can't rejoice with them because I'm bitter and I'm angry that they have what I want. And this just shows you why pursuing personal greatness by the world's standards is not a harmless endeavor. It's poisonous, and it causes us to do crazy things, like what we see right here. He wasn't following us. Who cares? You are not free. You are living in bondage if you can't root for other people who have what you want. And if you're there, if, if you can't be friends with somebody, you can't love on somebody, you can't cheer for somebody because they have something that you want and, and they have it and you thought you deserved it, so you're mad at them, honestly, your heart is not right and you need to repent. You need to turn from that. That, that selfish meism that says, I should have it, everybody's a competition, and I want this, even if it means tearing other people down or being bitter and angry, it's absolutely poisonous and we have to turn from it. And Christ says, hey, we're teammates. We're all on the same side. If you're not married and you really want to be married, you can still be happy for married couples. If you're, if you're pursuing uh, wealth, you can still be happy when somebody gets a financial benefit. If you're renting and you really, really want to own a house, you can be happy for those who own a house. And, and trust me, there's nothing to be jealous about because when you own a house, you have to pay $850 to fix your garage door in one week. Not that that happened to me, I'm just hypothetically. Um, but you have to be able to be free to rejoice and other people, and be happy for them. But when we pursue our own greatness, we can't, and we're in bondage. So Christ is saying, listen, turn your view of greatness upside down that says, first of all, I need to be ministered to. I need to hang out with the elite and only spend time with those that will contribute to my social and economic status. He says, turn that upside down and minister to the needy. And stop worrying about tearing everybody down so you're the last man standing and making everybody a competition and root for those and celebrate when good things happen for other people. And other people and your friends are not your competition. This, this idea ruins community where we can celebrate with one another, love one another, encourage one another, and it makes everybody competition where uh, I don't feel like I can be myself because I have to one-up you and, and better whatever you have and compete with one another. He says, knock that off, kill that, repent of that, turn that upside down, and be everybody's biggest cheerleader. Encourage people. So Christ is confounding what greatness looks like. Minister to those who can't return the favor. Rejoice in other people's successes. And then he gives one more example in verse number 41. 
Verse number 41, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. A cup of water, they're not going to lose their reward. The disciples, again, thought this was craziness. What's a cup of water? And why is somebody being rewarded for giving a cup of water? And what Christ is saying is, I want you to serve, and I want you to serve even in the little things. The things that you're not going to get credit for. Not the high-profile service. I want you just to serve and be willing to do the little things. <clears throat> if you want to be first, be small and serve in little ways. And again, this, this rubbed the disciples the wrong way. They didn't want menial tasks. They were going to be a big deal. They were going to be wearing crowns. They were going to be the ones being served. They were going to be the ones that said, hey, grab me a cup of water. And somebody would bring them a cup of water. And Christ says, listen, forget the crown. You're going to put on, you're going to wear a cross. And forget being served. Or I want you to be a servant. And this just tips what they felt like was about to happen absolutely upside down. They had these grand expectations that they were going to be served by the multitudes. And Christ says, I want you to serve. And I want you to do the little things. And this, again, does not sit well with our heart. But Christ, over and over again, established this. That his followers needed to be servants. In Luke chapter number 22, over and over again in Christ's ministry, he's laying this down. For who, he asks, is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? So who's better? The one who's sitting at the table, living it up, or the one who's serving the people at the table? Is it not the one who reclines at the table would have been the obvious answer, but then Christ comes back with this. But I am among you as the one who serves. Christ over and over again in his ministry was laying down the fact that true greatness is being a servant. And he demonstrated this when he got on his hands and his knees and he washed his disciples' feet as the Messiah of the world. Over and over again, he was saying, hey, I'll do the little things. I'll do the menial tasks. But this goes against our heart. We do not want to serve naturally. I want to show up someplace. I want to be served. I want, I want to come to church. I want to drop off my kids in children's ministry. I'll probably cl- complain that I got to walk up three flights of stairs to do it. But then I'm going to come down. I'm going to have some coffee. I'm going to sit, listen, take it all in. That's natural for me. And even if I serve, the natural bent of my heart is to say, okay, I'll serve, but but only on the first Sunday of the month, you know, and it can't be an even day. It has to be an odd day. And don't give me like a menial task like setting up chairs. Like it, it needs to be a big thing. That, that's natural for us no matter where we go. That we, we have this uh, me first, serve me. And it's not the bent of our heart to just want to pour out and serve other people. I see this all the time in my uh, three-year-old. Uh, the other night I was sitting on the couch watching a cartoon with her. And she was on my lap. I had my arm around her, and she just she was staring at the TV, didn't move, and she said, "Daddy, I'm thirsty," and just didn't move. I was thinking, okay, well that's 
She certainly didn't use manners. She didn't ask a question. She didn't say, please, just not going to respond to it. So five, six seconds go by and she goes, daddy, I'm thirsty. So I thought, okay, I can play this game. Uh, Not going to respond to it. So 10, 15 seconds later, she snaps her head back and goes, well, I said, well, what? She goes, aren't you going to get me a drink? And <clears throat> she's cute, so we talked, and then I got her a drink. But, um, but that, that's where our hearts are. Hey, I just, I just want to be served. I want to sit here. My expectation is that you'll go, you'll go get me something, you'll come back and serve me. That, because of our sin nature, is our heart. So how do we, how do we get to the place where we desire to serve? where we don't run from it, that we, we don't hope secretly that nobody asks us to do anything, that we can come in, come out, and really not be spent for anybody, but just kind of get comfortable, get refreshed, and not have to serve. How do we get to the place where we desire to serve? And again, the only way we do that is when we meditate on how deeply we have been served in the gospel. That that we weren't halfway there and Christ did the rest for us, that we didn't accomplish most, that we were in desperate need to be served. And Christ not only served us, but greatly served us in an ultimate way. Christ didn't say, hey, I'll do it, but only once and I'll do a little bit and they can do the rest and hopefully everybody will do their own share. Christ said, I'll do it all. I'll lay down my life. I will take on the wrath of God. I will be punished with the punishment that they deserve so that they can be set free, so that they can be liberated from the bondage of their sin. That is what he did for you. That is what he did for me. We have been greatly served from unfathomable wrath because Christ first served us. And it's only, <coughs> excuse me, it's only when we forget about that, it's only when we lose sight of that, that we feel like, I deserve some things. I deserve to be served. I don't need to be a servant. I'm above that. It's only when we lose sight of the fact that God, though we were absolutely, we brought nothing to the table and in desperate need of help, that God first served us in a great way that we were the marginalized, that we were the needy, and Christ was willing to lay down his life for us, that he embraced us, that he redeemed us, that he wrapped his arms around us for the sake of his grace and his mercy, not because we earned some sort of level of service. So I want you to understand this this morning because these are three just tough sayings to 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 minister to the needy, to be a servant of all, to root for those instead of making people your competitors. These are tough sayings. And it'll be easy to kind of leave here feeling guilty like, yeah, that's what I need to do and I'm going to try better next time and I'm going to try to serve more. It'll be easy to try to do this out of guilt or out of shame. But I want you to remember that Christ took on our guilt and he took on our shame. And we don't, We don't do these things. We don't serve and minister to the needy because we feel like in some way we'll earn God's favor by doing these things. That God will love us more if we do these things. 
because he already loves us unconditionally and wholly, and, 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 and that's not going to change. We don't do these things to pay God back. Hey, I had this sin debt, so now if, if I serve people and I minister and I'm willing to do the little things, I'll, I, I'll pay God back for my sin. The cost has been paid. We're debt-free. Christ laid down his life for us, paying the cost. So we don't do these things to pay him back. We do these things because we have been paid back. We don't minister and serve because then God will love us. We look at the unconditional love of God and how greatly we've been served. And that gospel truth empowers us to want to go do these things. So... (coughs) Please understand we don't do these things out of guilt, shame, to earn God's favor. We do these things because he has paid the cost. He's laid down his life for us. Christ redefined what greatness looks like. Typically, we don't think greatness is that person doing the the small thing like ministering in the children's classroom today. We don't look at that person and say, yeah, I mean, because people don't go like, to Bible college and get a master's degree. When you ask them, hey, why are you pursuing this master's degree? They say, I, I really want to be a nursery worker and I just feel like this is the, the, the next step to getting there. Like, it's not the path to worldly greatness, but, but ministering to the meek, to the lowly, to the marginalized, to the needy. Christ says, that is what greatness is. So as we wrap this up, we have to remember that if we're wrapped up in ourselves, if, if everything is about us and we feel like something's at stake and I have to fight for me and I have to get these things and I have to attain these things because then I'll be worthy of love and, and then I'll be respectable and, and embraced and redeemed and validated, we'll be miserable because it'll always elude us. We'll never get there and we'll always struggle with this pursuit. And we'll be frustrated and we'll live in despair. Just like the disciples fought about these things and were frustrated. But I want to look at one more thing that's very interesting about this this whole dialogue. If you remember in verse number 33, it says that this dialogue, this, this fighting that took place, it says, And they came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, What were you discussing on the way? And that term, on the way, from now on in the book of Mark, we're going to see that used more and more times. And that term, on the way, is used every single time because Christ is on the way to Jerusalem. So now they, from this point on, they are on a mission, on a path to get to Jerusalem. Why? So Christ can lay down his life and die. So that he can take all of the sin of mankind, all of our selfishness, all of our pride, all of our meism, all of our competitive spirits, all of our bitterness against other people who have what we want. He is going to take all of that on himself. He is going to become sin for us, the man who knew no sin, so that we could be righteous, so that we could be redeemed. So here are the disciples on the path to Jerusalem where Christ is going to suffer and die for them and for us are arguing about who's the greatest. And you have to imagine that if their eyes would have been open to that truth, 
that we are going so that he could shed his blood for us, so that he could pay the cost for our sin, they wouldn't have been having the trivial argument about, hey, which one of us is the greatest? And I think as Christians today, as we meditate on that truth, as we meditate on the cross and remember what he did, that when he died on that cross, he justified us, he redeemed us, he validated us, he embraced us, and now our identity can be in Christ and not what I accomplish. And when I recognize that in Christ I am validated, in Christ I am redeemed, in Christ I am loved, when I recognize those things, then I don't have to do things to be loved, to be validated, to be redeemed. So that's why we have to meditate on the gospel and preach the gospel daily to us and remember what this is all about. To not have arguments about who's the greatest in our minds and in our hearts, but remember that Christ demonstrated his greatness by laying down his life so that we could be called children of God, so that our identity could be in Christ, so we can take on his righteousness and be freed from having to pursue our own righteousness. Because we are already righteous in Christ, we're free from having to pursue that righteousness, and we're free and liberated to be able to serve and minister to other people. If you'd bow your heads with me and close your eyes. I'd like to ask you this morning, What's greatness to you? Is it wrapped up in yourself? If I only had this, then I would be great. If I could only be this, then I would have greatness. If I had these things. My hope this morning is if that's what's in our heart, if we're pursuing greatness with selfish motives, that we would repent of that, that we'd be honest, that we'd be broken, that we have not found our identity in Christ, and it's not rooted in what he has already done for us, that we would turn from that and turn to the one who has paid our debt, who has paid the cost for us, and given us a righteousness, an outside righteousness that's perfect and not our own. So we're free from having to fight and compete with one another. And because we don't have to do that, we can serve and minister to other people. That we would look to the Savior who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that we would live out of our identity and want to do the same thing. If you're here this morning and you have not been accepted, you have not been forgiven because you've never turned to Christ, let me just say that turning to Christ is not trying to earn your way to God because you could look at your life just like I could and realize nothing I could do could wash away my sin debt, the ill that I have done, that I am not great, that I'm not close to being great, that future me isn't going to be awesome, that I am a sinner in desperate need of rescue. And the Bible teaches that Christ saw our helpless condition and was willing to enter into humanity and rescue us and redeem us by going to the cross and paying for 
our sins, the, the punishment that we deserve, Christ took upon himself. And, and therefore, he says that if anyone will turn to him and not trust in him a little bit, but completely trust in his work on the cross, that we can be forgiven of our sin and given new life, that we could be rescued and redeemed and embraced into the family of God. And I would encourage you, if you've never done that before, that you would turn from your pursuits of greatness and trying to validate yourself and earn your own salvation, and you would turn to the one who has provided it as a gift for you. And if you're a Christian here this morning, would we use this time to turn from rooting our identity in anything other than Christ and his finished work? Would we repent of that? And then would we celebrate? Would we celebrate the one who was willing to pay it for us? Let's celebrate the one who served us in a great way. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we can come to this place and gather with other believers and celebrate your goodness, your gospel, that we would rejoice that it You didn't leave this up to us, that you freed us from the bondage of having to pursue our own greatness and earn our own validation, and that you stepped in and rescued us and redeemed us and gave us a righteousness that is not our own. We thank you for that. We rejoice in that, and we ask these things this 